Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. We uh, present another edition of Hotspot Hamilton. I've been looking forward to this one uh, when we set up the schedule for uh, which shows we're going to do. Uh, it's about public safety and uh, safety in our community, safety on our roads. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of that uh, in the next hour here on the program. Stick around. We've got uh, some great panelists for you. Uh, including this first panel. Uh, Clint Twollen is the uh, president of the Hamilton Police Association, uh, joining us here in studio. We talked a lot on the phones. Good to actually uh, have you here with us. Thanks for coming in, Clint. Thanks for having me. And uh, Michael Sanderson, who, of course, is in charge of Hamilton Paramedics. Chief Mike Sanderson is here as well. Michael, thank you for being here today. Appreciate the opportunity, Bill. I, I, I'm going to make a statement. I talked to you guys about this before we started the segment, so I'm going to lay this out here because I think it serves as a foundation for uh, an awful lot of what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. Uh, both of your departments are understaffed. Uh, and, and I know that somebody's going to say, well, the cops always say that, or the paramedics always say that. As a citizen, I'm saying that. And, and there's actually statistical evidence to back that up, isn't there, Clint? I mean, because, uh, you know, independent bodies have done studies and say, well, this is how many paramedics you should have, this is how many ambulance units, this is how many police you should have on the front line. And Hamilton falls short. Absolutely, we do. And uh, one of the former, I'll, I'll call it a metric for measuring how many police officers you should have, we consistently fall in the lower end of that. That's the cop to pop ratio. So we have roughly, I'm going to say about 151 police officers for every 100,000 citizens. The difference in Hamilton, of course, is uh, the diverse community, but also uh, some of the trends that have happened in Hamilton over the years. We have uh, an actual urban core. Um, we have uh, a very um, work-oriented community as well. And uh, certain things have gone through our community that uh, the police have had to deal with. We could certainly use a lot more uh, when you measure not just the cop-to-pop ratio, but also the crime severity index and the number of calls for service in general. So, yeah, we are low. But there's another factor here, too, and it affects both of you guys, uh, like geography. This is a very big area, and, and, and I know when, uh, when I was on council, we built the police station up on Rymel Road there, and I thought, this is a great facility, it's outdated already, but uh, at the time it was supposedly state-of-the-art, but the officers that are, are on duty from that station, they cover Flamborough. Uh, they go all the way, way the, ha- I mean, that, that's halfway to, to Guelph uh, and, or Kitchener, and, uh, and that's Hamilton. I mean, and then Dalfoy went down to the other way part, towards Winona. Your guys, Mike, are in the exact same situation. That You've got a lot of ground to cover here, and that's not always the case in other cities. Yeah, it's, it's a huge chunk of geography to cover. It's very challenging in terms of response time performance. And, and as you referenced earlier, call volumes continue to go up. And what we've demonstrated and shown over the last seven years, uh, we've had a 35% increase in actual demand for service. And we don't control the demand. We try to end up uh, educating the public about when you need to call an ambulance, uh, what you can do yourself and what to do prior to our arrival, those types of things. But an average of 5% a year far outstrips the actual population increase. And of course, that's dealing with the age. Uh, we're dealing with more elderly patients. We're dealing with patients that are discharged from hospital, increasing comorbidities. Uh, they're, they're looking after under home care. Uh, and these tend to be sick. So when they end up going over the edge, they're very brittle. Uh, they end up requiring ambulance support and paramedic support. Uh, last year, uh, it was about a 7% increase uh, for the actual year. So it's 5% a year over the last seven years. This year, I'm up 4.8%. So uh, as we continue to look at the demand increase, uh, that, that's going to be a challenge. And that's not just happening within the downtown core area. It is happening as you referenced, across the geography. So how do we end up making sure we're providing service in a reasonable time frame out of the people that live in the peripheries and in the rural areas of the city? Well, both services, both police and, and paramedics, are both uh, under the same guidelines about response times. And again, the province sets guidelines for that. 
And and I think it's fair to say, Clint, that both services are strained, I guess, to, to try to meet those standards. And again, it's simply because of staffing and geography. Absolutely. Uh, um, you know, we talked about it earlier, too, the fact that uh, we as a police service have really initiated an awful lot of different um, new uh, styles of dealing with our, our call demand, whether you're looking at uh, the mobile crisis response team, the coast team, our MRU teams, uh, all of these things, uh, the case prep unit, which we discussed as well, these are all things to free up our officers and allow us to be able to uh, try to manage the calls, calls for service. The problem is, uh, I personally, in my interaction with my frontline officers, is that those calls for service, if anything, are going up as opposed to going down. So we've tried to mitigate the what, time. What are some of the causes? In Mike's situation with paramedics, you're right, aging is certainly part of that. Uh, we are getting older. I mean, you know, I, I can't do the same sorts of things I did when I was 25, or if I try to, it hurts. Uh, and, and we're falling, and there's lots of things going on, and we get that. And, of course, there's the cardiac situation. But with police calls, uh, you figure, okay, if it's an aging population, we're kind of slowing down, yet your, your work is going up. Absolutely. But we're also being tasked with things that uh, we didn't really have to deal with years ago. And the best example is mental health calls. Yeah. Uh, I, I understand somewhere in the neighborhood of 20%, whereas it used to be somewhere around 5%. I, uh, I was on the tactical team for years and years. I came back onto the road and I was shocked to see the, the, the percentage of calls that we attend uh, that relate to mental health type of issues. Let me so. ask you something about that, because you've been doing this for a long time. When you say that number went up significantly, is that because there are more cases, or is just it's identified as such now? And maybe maybe those were going on before, but they weren't identified as mental health issues at that time. I, again, because of lack of information, lack of training. Uh, You're better informed now, for sure. We sure are, and 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 the communities are different now. Uh, I've I've I mean, there's theories behind why we would be um, more, uh, why mental health calls would be more pre- prevalent. I don't really have an answer for it, but I can tell you that just my my when I had returned to the road for two years, it was a different dynamic. And mental health certainly, it wasn't just the number of calls; it was the type of calls too. We see suicidal people at young young ages. We see uh, drug-induced mental health calls as well. So they may not be uh, actually under the influence at that point, but uh, due to drug use and alcohol use and that kind of things, it's being more identified as a a mental health issue as opposed to historically where it might have been an alcohol or a drug-related call. As bad as some of these concerns are, and as daunting as it can be to try to, to offer these kinds of services, uh, Mike, talk to us about the, the impact that something like the opioid crisis is having. I mean, because Hamilton is, is a, a hot spot here right now. There are a lot more calls. There are a lot more crisis situations right now. That's got to have an impact on both services, I would think. Well, it has an impact on us, obviously, in, in terms of the process. And uh, opioids are a problem. Uh, it, it's a fatal type thing. And, and to, to me, it's, it's, it's very sad that we end up into a situation like that where people are using drugs. They don't know what's in them. They don't know what they're actually taking. Uh, and that has lethal outcomes for them. Uh, to me, that's a significant challenge. Uh, in September, we had 72 reported opioid overdose calls where paramedics had to respond and do treatment. And, of course, our, our paramedics are all well capable of treating the patient on that, but but the treatment has to happen prior to our arrival. Uh, people need to know uh, that they're carrying a Loxone kit. You can access those through public health. You can access those through pharmacies. If you're going to be using illicit drugs, you better make sure that you're prepared to do that. Uh, they need to be careful about what they're doing and careful about what they're buying because the, the reality is you, you don't know what it is that you're putting into your body, and, and some of that stuff is very lethal. Uh, you, you need to call 911 when there is a suspected overdose. Don't be afraid to call because uh, we're not there to police anything 
we're there to end up helping the victim, uh, the person that's using, the person who's having the problem. And of course, the, the most essential part is when you see somebody that's not breathing, they're down on the ground, and that's what opioids do to you in the process, you have to know how to do CPR and do something prior to us arriving, uh, because CPR starts with the first people on the scene, uh, not just with the, the paramedics or the firefighters or the police officers responding to it. Uh, significant challenge for us. It is increasing. I have to say, though, uh, opioids, because they're so lethal and because they're so obvious, uh, we've, we've always had overdose problems. Uh, when I started in my career 43 years ago, we had different problems. It was speed. It was best amphetamines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was different things, and there's always been things that are using. Uh, you go through these crises with different types of drugs. Uh, it just happens that this one is it's far more easy to purchase and far more lethal in terms of the process. Uh, and you've seen those changes too, Clint, obviously, in your years on the street. Uh, it's changed. It's, uh, it's one crisis into another right now. But this has had a huge impact uh, on, on policing, obviously, and, and, uh, and the way that uh, frontline officers are having to approach this. I and mean, oftentimes you may be the first ones on scene. Well, we're a 24-7, uh, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. I do know the, the challenges that our friends uh, in EMS face, their, their staffing issues. Um, we are always out there, and so absolutely, we're going to be the, f- in many cases, we're going to be the first people to arrive on a scene like that. So, uh, it, And it is an adaptation, and it's, it's something that our members have to be aware of and very careful of. So, um, yeah, it, but we learn, that's, that's certainly through, through experience, we learn fairly quickly. I've... Uh I want to ask you about the police situation, about training. You talked about mental health issues and, of course, opioid as well. Uh, that's that's an added situation that a lot of folks don't take into consideration right now is the extensive training that officers have to go through to be able to deal with these sorts of things. Uh, you know, I, I'm just a couple of friends of mine just got back from succumbents at the Ontario Police College, and we're working up there. Uh, that's that's a curriculum that's got to change almost monthly or yearly, I guess, depending on, okay, what are we facing on the street these days? All right, here's how you guys are going to have to learn how to deal with that. Uh, education is ongoing for the frontline officers, clearly. That never changes. When I was at OPC 20 years ago, uh, our focus was uh, um, some of the newer things like suspect apprehension pursuits or just pursuits. Um, you know, uh, all of the basics. And then as years go by, you do see changes. And I see a change as a supervisor in the frontline officers that uh, deal with these calls on a regular basis. I'll give you an example. When I, uh, when I started, uh, I didn't carry rubber gloves around. Now there's not a police officer in the city of Hamilton who doesn't have a pair of gloves and aren't snapping them on as soon as they come to a scene. So that's different, absolutely. And, and obviously with your staff, same situation. It's, it's a different technique. It's a different approach to, to the problems as, as, as your staff come on scene. Yeah, it is much different. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we're always concerned about is crew safety in the process. Uh, so when you're arriving on a scene, not knowing what the situation's going to be like, and, and when you go to the overdose calls, for example, uh, you end up having patients that uh, are being resuscitated. They come out, they're angry. Uh, you have other people around them. Uh, it's in unsecure areas. So we're concerned about the, the crew safety from that perspective in terms of interacting with the people, but it's also the contact that they make. Uh, the opioids, uh, if you end up getting carfentanil, for example, and, and powder around, you have to make sure you're protected. You have to wear in the mask, you have to wear in the gloves. And I go back when the time period when I first started in EMS, uh, you hardly ever wore a pair of gloves uh, because blood and body born pathogens just weren't the issue. Uh, we, we didn't end up having to deal with that. And we've learned over the years and we have to make sure our people are protected. It's a much, much different world out there. I would be remiss. I've got a couple of minutes left here if I didn't bring this up, but I want to talk about this. Because of the pressures that you both described and, and the, the work that frontline officers are doing 
Uh, talk to us about the impact that that's having on those frontline workers and staff. Uh, you know, we, we talk about stress in the workplace, and we talk about the, uh, sometimes not being able to handle it. We talk about PTSD, certainly. Uh, that affects both both uh, paramedics and frontline police officers, Clint. And let's talk a little bit about the sorts of things that you see and from you here from, from, from your fellow officers. Well, it, it really is a very robust um, issue because it's not just from the calls for service that our officers deal with on a day-to-day basis because that hasn't changed considerably over the years. We have much more uh, oversight. We have uh, much more uh, training. We're expected to do a lot more. And you touched on the the training aspect. We get a week of training. That's how we do it here in Hamilton uh, to try to keep us up to date on all of the statutory things, but as well uh, the new trends. So. Um, becoming an expert in everything is very, very, very difficult. And what happens is with, with staffing, I'm not going to say we're in a crisis, crisis, but we're certainly very, very low. Our, our officers uh, go shifts without getting lunches. Uh, the, the need to decompress is a very significant need. And, and, uh, and we have a lot of young officers. The overtime is there all the time for these officers. But uh, it's pretty hard to convince somebody to, you know, it's time to back off a little bit. Um, they they have you know the well, va- look in both jobs both because I know guys in both lines of work men and women and in, in, in both these phrases that'll say I got this don't worry I can handle I know it's it's killing me today but I'm going to be better tomorrow I can handle this and and maybe they're just trying to fool themselves but I mean at some point the uh, I guess it just builds up. Well, I've been doing it for 20 years, and when I started, uh, you could not stop me from going call to call to call. That's what I wanted. Uh, I'm a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser now, and I've come to realize that uh, you really do have to pace yourself. Same thing with your guys. Well, we have the same challenges, and, and mental health issues when you're dealing with uh, the number of patients we end up dealing with. It, it's obviously a challenge in the process. Uh, well, we've gone through everything that we can to end up mitigating against it. We have the R2L more program, the, the Road to Metal Readiness. We've trained all of our staff in it. We're developing peer support programs. We're dealing with those things. But that's reactive. On the front end, it is about volumes, and, and the crew's running from call to call to call. On a bad day where we have significant offload delays at the hospitals, uh, you have crews that are sitting in a hospital, and they hear an emergency call going out for for a cardiac arrest or for a child struck or for something significant and they know they can't respond to it because they're at the hospital and they're still looking after the patient they're not cleared yet. So we're, we're going to have some challenges in terms of response time performance. Uh, they know that somebody out there needs them and they can't go to help. Uh, and of course that's actually very stressful on our people in terms of how they end up managing those activities. The things that you see, the things that you do, uh, the, the volume of calls that our paramedics deal. We're one of the busiest services in the province in terms of uh, actual call demand for our individual paramedics. Uh, and, and that's a challenge for us. The numbers are the numbers, and 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 the fact that uh, that both departments, I think, are able to to provide the service in this community, which they do, uh, is remarkable in and of itself. But uh, you still hear the heat, Clint, and and Mike, you hear from your uh, about your department too. Not fast enough, uh, you know. So there, there's there's a fatality that might not have been a fatality. You didn't get there in time. Those officers should have been there faster. Didn't respond in the proper fashion. That that's got to only add to that stress level and that frustration for the for the frontline officers in both in both areas. It it certainly does. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of critics. There's no two ways about it, and mostly those those critics are quite vocal. Uh, we do know, and the thing that we keep in the back of our heads at all times, the vast majority of the citizens in our community support us, and they know that we're doing a good job. We're doing the be- very best that we can with what we have, and that uh, you know uh, we're going to we're going to ha- fall short sometimes, not because of effort, but rather because of resources. 
Uh, so much more to talk about. We're unfortunately right out of time in this particular segment. Uh, thank you both for coming in here, and thanks. Uh, please uh, pass on to your staffs and your fellow uh, workers, too, about the great work that you guys do. It's great to have you in here today. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Clint Twolin, of course, uh, from the Hamilton Police Association, the president, and uh, Mike Sanderson, of course, from Hamilton Paramedics. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. As uh, we continue Hotspot Hamilton, and we're talking about traffic safety. I mean, we're talking about community safety. Obviously, uh, what happens on the roads and how people use the roads is going to be a key element of that discussion. Uh, earlier this week, of course, in the program, you know, we spoke to a woman who had uh, been affected by the death of a family member along the, the Red Hill, and uh, they made a presentation, of course, to city council earlier. So road safety, traffic safety, the design of roads, very much part of this discussion. And to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome our next two guests. Uh, Klaus Wagner, of course, is the Constable Traffic Specialist with Hamilton Police Services. Great to have you back with us. Thanks for coming in today. Bill, like always, thank you. And uh, Dave Ferguson, who's the Superintendent of Traffic Engineering for the City of Hamilton, uh, who we've talked to many times on the program. Uh, hard to get you out of the office, but thanks for spending some time, Dave. Good to have you with us here today. Uh, thank you very much, Bill. It's great to be here. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, by the way, are you over the uh, the, the pushback now about the, uh, the bike lanes on uh, those two st- uh, that, that wasn't your fault. I mean, it was. I like them. I like them. But I mean, it, this comes back to a, an issue that we've talked about on the program many times: is about the evolution of how we get from point A to point B in the city. It's changed, Dave. I mean, we we don't have the same mindset we did 34 years ago. Although some people, I guess, still do. But but cities have to evolve, don't they, when they come to traffic design and how roads are designed and used. Yeah, and I mean, there's a there's been a lot of change throughout the industry, and and I mean, really started in Europe, and it's rolled over into North America, and a lot of the things that we're doing or looking at are, are things that are new to our our area, and and anytime you implement something that's new, uh, it obviously causes some confusion and and can cause some frustration, so people aren't used to it, so. But uh, overall, uh, the the complaints have gone down. Uh, we still receive some every once in a while, but uh, we're monitoring it. And so far, uh, but we've did, did, maybe success. one of the biggest changes, though, is there the, probably was a mindset years ago that said, "Look, at the purpose of roads is to get from here to there as quickly as we possibly can." And and Hamilton was actually better than a lot of cities at that. You know, you had the integrated light system. I mean, you could get across town on Main Street pretty quickly, and that was a great idea. Uh, for a lot of people, and and I was one of them for the longest time, but now we seem to have integrated. Okay, what about safety? Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's let's talk a little about safety, okay? Uh, and that means maybe we're going to have to go slower. Maybe we're going to have to change the design. And and anytime you institute change, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Hamilton is is really worldwide known for how efficient their transportation system has been, uh, especially with the one way road system. Um, but as you said, I mean, things that have changed, uh, there's movements towards, uh, the vision zero movement, uh, zero, uh, serious injuries and fatalities, uh, and things are changing. There's, th- there is a movement to slow down traffic. And when you look at some of the statistics and hear some of the things from Hamilton police and, and the Ontario provincial police, uh, it's clear that there's some issues on our roads. Well, and you, your cost, you're the guy that, and, and your staff are, are the ones that end up have to, having to deal with this. So we've got this mindset now that says, okay, maybe we need to have safer streets. Maybe we need to slow down. Maybe we need to have dedicated bike lanes. Yet I'm looking at stats here that said that cyclist and pedestrian collisions are actually on the rise in Hamilton. We're going the wrong way here. Yeah, well, and it's it's getting people used to and understanding. I mean, we take phone calls every day, you know, people wanting, you know, complaining about their neighborhood. You know, there's, you know people aren't stopping at stop signs. People are running red lights. People are, are speeding. 
But are those people that are complaining driving like that when they're in other people's neighborhoods? And, and I, I would say, you know, I may be wrong, but I think, no, they're not. They, they only worry about their own backyard, but then when they get outside because they want to get, like you said, to point A to point B, they're driving at those increased speeds. So we need to get that mindset where, you know what, it's not just your neighborhood. It's the neighborhood is that as soon as you get on the road and, and slow down and, and the bike lanes, you know, I'm a bike rider. I bike ride yeah. back and forth from Burlington every day. And, but it's, again, it's learning to understand. It's not just, I have a license and I'm going to just try to keep the car between the white line and the dotted line. It's understanding the rules that a bike lane is a lane of traffic. You can't just turn in front of bicycles. And that was the, the, the few, the collisions we do see with bicycles are those types of things. It's sometimes it's the bicycle rider going the wrong way or going through a red light, or sometimes it's a car turning through the bike lane expecting the bike to stop when the rule is it's a lane of traffic. That bike has the, the right to go in that direction just like any other lane of traffic. I, I Contrary to you, Klaus, I'm not much of a cyclist, but I'm going to tell you why. Because uh, when I was a kid, I was scared to death to get on the road and because I, I wasn't very good. I didn't mm-hmm. I, you know, usually board somebody's bike. I didn't mm-hmm. often have a bike my own. Uh, when I was younger anyway, mm-hmm. and, and I was always, you know, worried about some guy crawling up and dry, not giving me enough room, and mm-hmm. I, it, it happened. I got run off the road a few times, mm-hmm. and that kind of swore me off this sort of stuff. So it was inevitable day, wasn't it, that at some point we as a society have to say, look, it, we want to encourage cycling. We think that it's got to happen, but you've got to give them their space. And some people just don't want to buy into that, but the city has to, I think, take a lead on that. Yeah, and, and when you look back at the history of, of traffic, I mean, the, the primary goal of the road system at one point in time was the movement of vehicles. That's what we focused on. And as time has evolved, it has become about providing a right-of-way for all road users, regardless if you're a, a cyclist, a pedestrian, or a, a motor vehicle. Uh, the other thing just wanted to touch base on was uh, on the, the increase in stats. In the U.S., they've just released uh, a notice that for the second year in a row, the collision rate and fatality rate has increased. It's the first time since 1979-1980 that that's happened. Why is that happening? Uh, is again people is it resistance to change more car drivers i think yeah that's I mean, obviously when you, i mean it. if you drive to toronto those hov lanes and you know there's you can drive on those as soon as you have somebody else in the car with you and you look how many cars are just single drivers are just there's so many people and so we have more cars on the road i mean most a lot of families have two maybe three cars in the family so everybody's out there driving and, and like I said, for 30 years for me and for what I've seen the last 15 in traffic and reading collision reports and reading people's statements, I, I again, I will say, I don't think people understand that you need to learn to drive every day. There's learning to drive a car, not just keeping it between the lines. You have to, you know, do all the things that your brain is telling you. That's why people keep hitting brakes. No matter how many times car companies are now trying to make cars, you know, self-driving they're not you still have a driver and driving is a verb you have to actually do something so when your brain keeps hitting the brake there's a reason for that because your brain is telling you you're too close to the car in front of you do you know what i mean but for some mm-hmm. reason we i'm, I'm always amazed when you come on the program and you tell me about some of the quote-unquote excuses that people use when when you or, or some mm-hmm. of the other officers pull them over and and i would think probably the number one excuse is when i was late Exactly. So, uh, all right, and and your answer is always the same. Speed, time, distance. You ha- you have to understand that if you you know, and when you really the grand scheme of things, it's no different when we drive in a, an emergency vehicle. By speeding up a little bit in track, it's maybe a minute difference. So why didn't you leave fifteen minutes earlier? Do you know what I mean? Like, that I, I love the story because you, uh, you've told it before uh, about the lady who was rushing through a school zone and went right through the school zone at high speed. 
and uh, you know, well, that bus is there every morning, and you and you simply say, why don't you leave before the bus gets here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I knew it was coming on today. And just last week, I, I read a collision report where again, someone was th- their statement basically was they were driving beside a truck that was pulling a trailer, and the trailer kept kind of coming over into their lane, and they could it kept coming over, it kept coming over, it kept coming over, and then two blocks down the road, it hit me. And I'm reading the statement, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's wrong that it happened. That, but why didn't you either speed up or slow down so you weren't beside it? Mm-hmm. You were recognizing that it kept coming over, that it could hit you. So again, it's it's people not you know they're not using their brain as in it's telling you something, and you're just kind of disregarding what the information because we're still, as I always say, we're still those animals that when we used to be a part of the food chain, you know, maybe it's because we're not a part of the food chain anymore. People kind of disregard when bad things are about to happen because you know yourself. People always say, you know, I, I had a feeling. Well, then. Maybe, unfortunately, act on that feeling sometimes. Lorraine Somerville, who, uh, you know, t- a TV host and, and uh, she writes about traffic and things like that. She's a very smart lady. She mentioned uh, that comment because uh, she was hearing from a lot of people that saying, for instance, like on highway driving. Yeah, but they, the people were all around me. They were speeding. and they were, they, She says, pull off the side of the road. He says, wait two minutes until there's another group. He says, obviously, you're, you're dealing with a bunch of idiots. Let them go off. Mm. And then and just it, there's, always a, there's always a plan B, isn't there? Yeah. But most people just don't take the time to do it. Yeah, exactly. And as a result, you know, they go and blame. Well, it's the design of the road. It's you guys. You know, mm. these, the, these, the speed should be up. Speeds are going down. I think people just have to get their head around that, yeah, especially mm-hmm. in residential areas, Dave. There's a real move afoot here in Hamilton now to reduce residential speed limits. Uh, and, and I know there's been a huge pushback from that, but uh, statistics indicate that there's a benefit to exactly what you, that you guys are doing here in the city now. Yeah, I mean, the province has brought forward uh, Bill 65. Uh, part of that is automated speed enforcement, and included in that is uh, the ability to uh, designate neighborhoods as uh, a lower speed limit. So it definitely is coming. We're currently working on the regulations, and there's there's lots of scientific data. Uh, anybody can go on the Internet and look it up. Uh, that shows the direct relation between the severity of injuries that occur in a collision uh, based towards the speed. So, um, you know, from a from a transportation standpoint or a transportation professional, uh, you know, I, I can't ever justify uh, having or encouraging people to drive faster than the posted speed limit. The, the law is the law. Forty is pretty much going to be the new normal, or less, mm-hmm. I guess, in yeah. a lot of areas yes. now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and if we think about it, at 40 kilometers an hour, and I'm just throwing out a number, so this is not the exact number, but say at 40 kilometers an hour, it takes you 10 meters to stop, mm-hmm. okay? At, at 50, at 50 uh, sorry, at 60 uh, kilometers an hour, it, it doesn't uh, just add another five. It actually doubles it, just at that half, so at 50%. So that's why that 40 might make a difference between someone getting killed to, you know, maybe getting hit or not hit at all. It makes a huge difference. But Canadians, as we all know, when when I'm on my, uh, when I answer questions at uh, public meetings or on, on shows like yourself, Bill, people will say to me, well, when would an officer pull you over? Like when they do radar enforcement, when do they pull you over? And, you know, in Canada, it's that standard number. Everybody always thinks, well, it's at 20 kilometers. If you're not, if you're kind of under 20, the police will leave you alone. So if we increase the speed to what some people want on the highways at 120, What's the average Canadian going to drive at? Mm-hmm. 140. Sure they will. Sure. You know what I mean, no matter how many times the groups that are advocating the 120 are saying, oh, then you make it zero, zero tolerance. It's going to take 20 years to mindset people to start thinking 120 is 120. 
because we just I, I come down the 403 every morning from Ancaster from Golf Links all the way down here okay and if you're not doing 115 uh, they're leaving you in the dust exactly. and that's at 430 in the morning yeah uh, so I'm just off in the right hand lane doing their thing but that's always going to happen there's always going to be people to take advantage of that but but uh, which is why I guess road design comes in and when people talk about well the, the speed limit should be higher guys at the city why aren't you doing something about this that that factors into road design too doesn't it Dave I mean there are some roads that you're not supposed to go 100 clicks on it because it's not safe yeah and if you look at I mean there's obviously been lots of discussion about the parkways and yeah. uh, increasing speed or lowering the speed uh, when those are designed they're set at a design speed and the posted speed limit is there to provide notification and a regulation, obviously, to the motorists of what that safe speed is for them to drive. In good conditions. In, in good conditions. In good conditions. Exactly. <laughs> and, and when you look at the sign, it's, it says a maximum. It's not a minimum. That's the maximum speed that you should be traveling in good conditions. And when you, you look at some of the stats on the Red Hill, there's clear that there's incidents where things are occurring in poor weather conditions and people aren't adjusting their speed appropriately. They continue at the same speed they were traveling and then incidents occur. And those, and those conditions that you've just referred, uh, those can pop up. I mean, it may not be raining, but I mean, you're mm -hmm. in a valley. You could run into fog. I mean, there can be fog at nine o'clock at night that wasn't there at seven o'clock in the evening. I mean, at least sorts of things happen. Mm -hmm. And as drivers, I guess we have to prepare ourselves for that. Well, I just tweeted that out the other day because we had our first frost coming up. Yeah. I, I tweeted out, frost with the, and then add leaves on the road summer people summer's tires that might not be great summer tires all that you have to adjust that in your head that you know it's not perfect condition and you know again a lot of collision reports people say i came up to a stop sign i hit my brakes and i slid out because it was slippery well did you adjust your speed it's not august 4th where it's beautiful hot weather and the, and the roads and it's dry and everything you know we need to adjust ourselves that way uh, so so far this year we've given out over 1500 speeding tickets on the on the Parkway and, and Red Hill Valley, uh, sorry, and uh, Lincoln and Red Hill Valley. And the average uh, speed uh, for those tickets is 28 uh, kilometers over the speed limit. And that's the average. So we know there's higher ones. And, and you know, so it's, and those are a lot of times, like you said, there's some of them in bad weather. So it says 90 maximum on good weather. And now it's raining or it's early in the morning and it's raining. And you're driving, you know, 30 kilometers over the speed limit and maybe going to work and you've got your coffee and mm -hmm. God forbid you've, you know, you got your Netflix going because that's a big issue we see now. A lot of people are, are streaming things while they're driving on the road mm -hmm. because, you know, I got to catch up on my Game of Thrones. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what they're doing. They're streaming things while they're trying to drive a car at 130 kilometers an hour. It's, it's bizarre. And the other element, too, is, as we've talked about, Klaus, in the past, is too many people out there think they're Vin Diesel. Uh, <laughs> no, I really. I mean, Oh, I agree. You know, and, and just, Fast hey, and I, saw them, I saw them do that in the movie, so I can yeah. I can drive like that on yeah. the link, too. Yeah, and it's easy for me to say, and we'd probably all agree, um, I mean, this problem could go away very simple by putting limiters on cars. Cars can't go more than 115 kilometers an hour. It could be as simple as that if we really, truly wanted to do something about it. You know, until, until uh, you know, automated cars are truly automated and, and everybody has one, you'll see, maybe that'll make a difference, but you still need an operator. All these cars still need an operator. And as soon as you add that human element in it, there's going to be people that are going to be fiddling with things and adjusting stuff. And 
I'll give you an easier solution. What's that, Dick? And that's uh, simply us just taking accountability for our own actions. Well, there's that. Own. Yes. That's a novel no, idea. No, it's the other guy that was the bad <laughs> bad driver. It was the or other it's, guy. Or it's, or it's the road, or it's, yeah. it's that damn roundabout. I mean, I, I was on council back in the day when I think I think it was when Hamilton did their first roundabout. It was up by the old Ancaster Fire Hall, you know, way yep, up on yep, there. Yep, yep, And, and Lloyd, uh, Mur- Lloyd Ferguson's brother Murray was the councilor for the time, and he was betwixt and between. He was against it, then he was for it, then he was and he had, I don't know how many public meetings about this, and finally said, let's do it. Let's just go. Uh, I think they're the best idea the city's developed. I mean, we've got dozens of them in our neighborhood now. Yeah. Uh, I know they're in Stony Creek. They're developing in other areas. Uh, and I know some people still get upset about this, but it's a matter of really using common sense. And yeah. uh, it, and now I, th- I think even the counselors that were skeptical about that day were saying, yeah, let's put these things in. Yeah, I mean, the safety benefits of a roundabout compared to a signalized intersection are, are huge. Um Obviously, because uh, a motorist only has to deal with looking at one direction and being able to enter. Um, Now, with uh, the pedestrian crossovers being in place at some of them, there's an added component where they have to first pay attention to the look for pedestrians and then enter into the circle. Uh, A lot of the things that we're seeing with the roundabouts is um, still, though, the aggression of entering. And yeah, you still see some idiots yeah, that just figure I'm just going to zoom right through. Yeah, and that's that's not the intent of a roundabout. I mean, you, you need to approach, you need to start slowing down, you need to start going through looking for the pedestrian and then focusing on the, the internal traffic and looking for your gap to proceed. Uh, but the if the safety benefits of a roundabout are, are tremendous. I know that there were some people that pushed back and said, well, there are going to be more accidents. I don't, th- statistics don't bear that out, do no, they? No, we don't have, a, we don't have a lot. Like I said, like I, I'm, I almost see almost every report that we do as a police department comes, a police service comes through my office and myself or my partner look at every single one of them. And uh, yeah, there's not a lot with the roundabout. If there, if there is, it's, it's more, you know, somebody three cars back was not paying attention mm-hmm. and they bump into somebody that was slowing down to, They're to get watching that Game of Thrones episode. <laughs> yeah. On you know, iPhone. and, Every once in a while, we haven't had a collision because of it, but every once in a while we get complaints where someone that lives in, in the neighborhood, you know, I, goes the wrong way because they want to cheat and because mm-hmm. they don't want to go all the way three quarters of the way around the kind of look and they just go that way and they're not paying t- attention to the cyclist or the pedestrian that, that was about to cross the And street. usually they're property damage to yes, collisions. Exactly. There's Those not ones, the serious yeah. injuries or fatalities. Well, because by definition, you're slowing down anyway right. just because yeah. you're heading into the roundabout. Yeah. But and you remove the angles too, right? So you yeah. have no angle collisions or head-on type collisions. Yeah. No, I, I think they're fabulous. Yeah. And it's understanding them. It's That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Again, it's that learning comp, uh, component about, I just, just because you have a driver's license, something new. I mean, it's not, when we started driving, there, there's, an, there's the internet now. You know, go on there. We have lots mm-hmm. of stuff that the, the, we tweeted out. Uh, the city's got it. There's all kinds of stuff there. How to properly use a, a, a roundabout, a pedestrian crossover. The information's out there. Spend the time, you know, that two two minutes it might take instead of Googling something else to learn how to do it properly and it'll make your life much easier. Yeah, I got about a minute left here. Yeah. I mean, the reality here, I guess, Dave, the message is uh, this is the new reality. Um, I mean, roundabouts, bike lanes, l- reduced speed limits. Uh, you better get used to it because it's it's not going away. Yeah, and, and I think overall, you know, based on this the stats and the things that we're seeing, I think there's a couple of of messages to get out. One is. You know, if Hamilton and the residents of Hamilton are serious about traffic safety, uh, we need to be part of the solution. And so, you know, obey the speed limit, obey the rules of the road, as well as, you know, pedestrians and cyclists. Be aware of your surroundings. Just because you get the walk signal, don't just walk out onto the road. 
you know, look before you cross. I tell my kids all the time, you know, before you cross that road, regardless, you make sure those cars are stopping before you go. And and I think that's something that we really need and to quickly, do. And quickly, as my old chief used to say, Glenda Care used to say, compliance is free. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Guys, thanks for coming in. Great no, having you on you. the program thank today. You. Klaus Wagner, of course, uh, traffic specialist with Hamilton Police Service, and uh, Dave Ferguson, superintendent of traffic engineering for the city. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.